So, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to start with a clever little illustration or alarming statistics. We're going to start with the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in this same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Does your house look like this? If it does, please invite me over for supper. I would love to walk through it. Doesn't make much sense, does it, to have a house that's upside down, where the roof is actually the floor and the floor is actually the roof. But folks, I'm here to tell you this morning, you should be living, you should be creating, you should be designing an upside down home. Because what Jesus just described in Matthew chapter 5 is the upside down kingdom. And as we've said throughout this series, your home, your little household is a microcosm of the kingdom at large. So your little kingdom reflects the larger kingdom. And if we are living in an upside-down kingdom, our homes should reflect that. Notice a little more closely some of the traits that were mentioned in the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, which is humility, complete and total reliance upon God. You have mourners, they define the kingdom as well. Now, this is not talking about grieving over the loss of a loved one necessarily. This is talking about spiritual mourning. You are mourning your own spiritual condition as you see yourself in comparison to God and Jesus. And so, therefore, you want to do something about it. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Kingdom dwellers are meek, which means that they allow God to be in control. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Kind of like a man who has been starving because he hadn't eaten for a week. Or the man that's wandering around in the desert with no water and he's so parched that his tongue is sticking to the roof of his mouth. The kingdom citizen has a deep longing to be satisfied by God. Kingdom citizens are merciful. And this isn't just sympathy. This isn't just an attitude that says, I'll pray for you. This is pity in action. This is true empathy where you get inside of the other person and you see things with their eyes and you feel things with their feelings. You think things with their brains. Kingdom citizens are pure in heart. They have a one-track heart that beats for God and God alone. They are peacemakers, not just peaceable people, but they do the things that actively make for peace, and they are persecuted. They are reviled against, but they trust in God, knowing that no matter what happens to them on this earth, that they have their reward in heaven. So who wants to be a part of this kingdom? doesn't really sound all that appealing, does it? I mean, who would want to be a part of, of that kind of kingdom? It's kind of like who would want to be a part of these kind of churches? 
Can you read that? These are actual church signs. Do you know what hell is like? Come hear our preacher. That's, that's not out front. So, Or how about this one? Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. Not real inviting, is it? Probably not a church you want to be a part of. Same way with this kingdom that Jesus describes. At first glance, you may say, well, who would want to be a part of that kingdom? Until you realize, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. The merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called sons of God. And those who are persecuted will be rewarded in heaven. You see what Jesus is doing here? He is defining discipleship, and in the process, he's redefining winning. He's redefining what it means to be blessed. This is a character description of the follower of Jesus. And not only do we read it here, we see it in other places. The winners are those who love their enemies, who go the extra mile, who turn the other cheek. All things that are completely foreign to the culture that surrounds us. But that's the point. Kingdom citizens are different, and therefore kingdom homes should be different as well. We should be building an upside-down home. read an article recently entitled, The Eight Essential Steps to Building a Winning Company Culture. And it's interesting what this article stated. Here's how you build a winning company culture. Number one, you learn from the past. Number two, you create a culture that aligns with your core values. Number three, you find great people who compliment you, supplement you, not compliment you as like, you know, hey, you're great. Number four, you communicate. Number five, you have fun. Number six, you invite people to drink the Kool-Aid. Number seven, you work as a team. And number eight, you maintain and carefully evolve your culture. I found it interesting that as I read through that list, I thought, you know, those are really the essentials for a winning culture in your home, too. I mean, these things are present within a winning culture anywhere, right? The church, your home. You think about it, most, if not all, of these traits provide a winning formula for a kingdom, a kingdom culture. Jesus lists the things that make for a winning culture. That's how we should view the Beatitudes. It's a winning formula for the losers of society. Think about the audience that Jesus is speaking to. This could not have been a more unpromising group of people. In the audience that day were people living under the rule and reign of Rome who could be persecuted and killed without any repercussions. There were children in the audience that also could be killed, that could be done away with without any sort of repercussions. It's this ragtag group of people who had no rights, who really had no sort of, uh, you know, freedom in and of itself to do anything under the rule of Rome. You know, many of them were on the brink of starvation. You know, the working man's wage at this day and time was one denarius. No one ever got fat or rich off of one denarius. So when Jesus says things like, do not worry about what you will eat or what you wear, he was talking to a people that didn't really have a lot of options. You know, most people didn't get to eat a fat steak each week. Rarely did that happen. These are people that are, that are struggling. 
Some of them are, you know, on the brink of starvation. And Jesus is telling them, you're the winners. How odd that must have sounded to them. But what he is doing with this ragtag group of listeners is he is calling them blessed. He says, you thought you were the losers, but you're not. You're the winners. You know who the losers are? The people who thought they were the winners. How alarming these words must have been to the powerful, the mighty, the affluent, the religious leaders. As Jesus is telling them, no, no, you're not the winners. You're the ones on the outside looking in. The true winners are among these, these people that, that are so unpromising, this ragtag group of individuals that think that they're nothing. They're the real winners in all this. In the same sermon, Jesus said, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders thought that the kingdom was theirs. They thought that they were the winners. They assumed that's what they were, when in fact, they were on the outside looking in. The Beatitudes are a proclamation. Maybe you've never thought of them that way, but you should. They're a proclamation. The Beatitudes are a proclamation of victory. Jesus is saying, you win. This is a declaration of who wins, which makes no sense at all. I mean, all of these Beatitudes would seem to be misapplied. Meek people don't win. You assert your will. That's how you win, right? Winners don't cry. Winners aren't gentle. Winners aren't peacemakers. Winners don't get shoved around. But Jesus is redefining winning. And in the process, he's redefining who the winners are. The Sermon on the Mount is a lot of things. But if it's anything, it's a victory speech. It's a declaration of dependence. Follow Jesus, rely on him, and you win. And I believe this is what we need to be teaching our children. This is the culture we need to be building in our homes. We need to redefine winning. We need to redefine what it means to be blessed. For many, winning and being blessed means having a fat bank account, having a nice new car, having a nice new house, success, status. That's how our culture defines winning. We need to redefine winning and redefine what it means to be blessed. In fact, we call those things blessings, don't we? Thank you, God, for all these blessings that you bestowed upon us. And then we proceed to let the blessings override the blesser. If Jesus were speaking to a crowd today, maybe a crowd not unlike ours, maybe he would say, whoever loves sports more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves their job or stuff more than me is not worthy of me. Coaches talk all the time about building a winning culture. And building a winning culture usually involves hard work and commitment and sacrifice. That's the same thing that's involved in building a winning spiritual culture. Whether it be the church, whether it be the home, building a kingdom culture means having one priority. Not competing priorities, one priority. Our little family is an extension of a greater kingdom, which means that we destroy all idols, we embrace kingdom values, and, and we live upside down. The Beatitudes are all about family values, kingdom values, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering, thirsting for righteousness. These are all kingdom values that we're seeking to apply or implement in our homes. We're redefining winning, and we're redefining blessed to be blessed no longer looks like a fat wallet. It no longer looks like a nice house or a new car. It no longer, no longer looks like newer, bigger, or better. Because we don't value those things. 
We value kingdom things. We are different because we are citizens of a different kingdom. There's a cross-country runner by the name of Abel Mutai, a very accomplished runner. And one time he was running in a cross-country race and he stopped because he didn't really understand the signage. He became confused and he thought he had won. There was the second place runner not far behind him, a Spanish gentleman by the name of Ivan Fernandez Anaya, who saw him stopped, saw that he was confused, and tried to urge him to keep running towards the finish line, trying to point him in the right direction. But Mutai was not able to understand Spanish. And so Ivan Fernandez Anaya coaxed him, pointed him in the right direction, using hand gestures to help him actually win the race. Well, as you can imagine, everyone was dumbfounded. Why in the world would this Spanish runner who was in second place, who could easily have overtaken Mutai and won the race, why would he do such a thing? In fact, one journalist asked him after the race, why did you do it? He said, my dream is that someday we can have a kind of community life where we push and help each other to win. Well, that wasn't good enough. The journalist kept pressing him. But why did you let the Kenyan win? And Ivan responded, I didn't let him win. He was going to win. The race was his. That wasn't good enough. The journalist insisted, you could have won. And Ivan looked the journalist dead in the eye and said, but what would have been the merit in my victory? What would be the honor in that medal? And then he said this, what would my mother think of that? I'm not sure if Ivan Fernandez Anaya is a Christian, but I can tell you this, that's a kingdom mindset. That's the way kingdom citizens think. The journalist represents the world's mindset, and I'm not degrading the journalist by any means because I, I think the same way. I think we all do. I mean, you don't let somebody win when you have a chance to overtake them. I mean, you fight to the finish, and so be it if the other runner gets confused. Sorry. So I don't disparage the remarks of the journalists, but it just shows you the conflict between kingdoms and between natures, right? You're supposed to take advantage of your opponent's weakness. You don't sacrifice yourself for the sake of another's victory. You do, though, when you operate with a kingdom mindset in a kingdom culture. I can tell you this. Ivan Fernandez and I won that day. He won. He may not have won the race, but he certainly won the prize. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Royce read from it a moment ago. You didn't think we'd go through a whole series on family without looking at Deuteronomy 6, did you? Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. That is the Shema in the Jewish culture. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Someone called this the Deuteronomy drip principle, and I think it's very fitting. I also think it's a really good model for building a kingdom culture in our homes. I used to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 as kind of like a faucet. You turn the faucet on and it gushes out. You turn it off and you come back to it later, turn it on again. So in other words, as a parent, it was my job to create time during the day to have, you know, study the Bible with my kids, 
to have a devotional with them at night, maybe read them a Bible story before they went to bed, which are all good things, right? But I kind of started to look at Deuteronomy 6 different over the years. It's still all of those things, but I don't think it's so much as turn on the faucet and let it gush out as I do barely turn on the faucet and just let it drip. There's a dripping involved here, not a gushing. I think a few things are obvious from the outset. First of all, every family must choose which God they're going to serve, right? Remember, Moses is speaking to an audience of people who just came out of a land where they served many gods. And so he's saying, look, God chose you. You'd better choose God because he's the only viable option. He's the only one that can give you deliverance and rescue. God expects also for faith to be handed down. I think that's obvious from this passage as well. So this idea that our kids are individual personalities and therefore faith is personal and they should just be able to figure that out on their own, that's not biblical, okay? That's ridiculous. The Bible is very clear that faith should be handed down, that faith should be passed down, that we are building a legacy of faith and like links in a chain, we are making those links as strong as possible as we build that chain all the way down to grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids, and so on and so forth. And there will always be other tasks to tend to. There will always be other duties as a sign, but God is not scheduled. Faith is not a category. This is about identity, and that identity is meant to be expressed and passed along. This dripping, this dripping occurs because it is constant. It's always there, like that annoying drip of your faucet. It, it, is always, it is always there. You can't fix it. You don't want to fix it. Building a kingdom culture doesn't occur over the span of hours or days. This is long haul. This is as long as you're alive type of stuff, right? There's a constant maintenance there's a teaching involved. Remember, in the time that this was written, there weren't copies for everyone to have. And so memorization was vital. Moses says this, this isn't about head knowledge. This is about heart knowledge. This is about getting it from your head to your heart. And parents, how are your kids going to buy in if they don't see it written on your heart first? We cannot expect more from, their, from our children than what they see in us, right? We cannot expect more from our kids than what they see in us. We're always teaching something, good or bad. Let's teach kingdom things. I don't know much about working on cars. I know just enough to be dangerous. My dad knows a lot about it. I, don't, I didn't get that gene. I didn't get that trait. I, I don't know how to rebuild a, an engine or to replace a transmission. I have other things that I'm passionate about. My, my children, maybe even you, can look on social media and see what I'm passionate about. But hopefully, my life expresses it as well. I'm passionate about God. I'm passionate about faith. And I'm hoping that my kids see that. That they look at me and they see someone who's passionate about faith. Because listen, whatever you're passionate about is going to show itself in your daily life. It can't help but. So whatever you're passionate about is going to saturate who you are. So let the teaching and conversation in your home elevate the culture toward God. Kingdom culture requires kingdom conversations. If you're passionate about it, you won't be quiet about it. Many of you are passionate about your grandkids. And anybody that will, will listen 
Or anybody that you, can, that you can hold hostage for five minutes will have to look on your phone at all the pictures of your grandkids because you're passionate about your grandkids. Or they want to show you a little video and you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, that's five minutes long. I don't, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm stuck here for five minutes watching a video about these people's grandkids and I don't really care about it. You know, But if you're passionate about something, you want everybody to know it. Let your passion for God express itself in big ways and small ways so that people can't help but notice especially your kids that's what Moses is driving at let it drip let it drip when you're sitting in your house when you're walking by the way when you lie down when you wake up let it drip let it drip I want you to notice something else make note of verse 9 you shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates I've been blessed to be invited into many of you guys' homes. And what I've noticed in all of them is there's a scripture on the wall. There's a cross hanging somewhere. Or there's a, a Bible, many times open, somewhere. You have these spiritual reminders all over your house. That's what I think of when I read verse 9. When you're passionate about something, it shows. Many guys have a man cave in their house where they display memorabilia from their favorite sports team. Many ladies have dolls or trinkets that they collect and they, they set them out so that when people come over, they can, they can see them. And we do that spiritually as well when we display scripture or when we, we have an open Bible or we have spiritual reminders around our home. Because we're passionate about that, it shows itself in our decorations in every part of our lives. These are a testament to our passions, and so it is with God. Our passions will always make themselves known, so we create a kingdom culture by talking about it, thinking about it, living it, and displaying it in our home. You remember a couple of years ago, I'm sure you do, you could probably recite the sermon verbatim, we talked about kingdom, you, you remember that, right? I'll remind you if you don't. We talked about kingdom. We talked about how Jesus' favorite subject is kingdom. Read the gospel sometime. That's his favorite subject. And when he talked about kingdom, he talked about the kingdom that is, that is to come. And when we look at kingdoms, we notice that with any kingdom, there's four essential traits, right? For any kingdom to be a kingdom, you have to have four things. So you have to have a king, obviously. You have to have subjects, you have to have law, and you have to have territory. So the king hands down the laws or the decrees. This is how the king declares his will. Within the boundaries of the kingdom, he is the ultimate authority, and the role of the citizens is to serve under the rule and reign of the king. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a king? Does he provide for and protect his citizens? That's it. That's really the only standard of measure to determine whether a king is successful or not. Does he provide for and protect his citizens? Kind of like Under Armour, those commercials, protect this house. That's his only job. That's his only job, to protect this house. If he doesn't do that, he's not worth his salt. So you have a king and you have a queen in the household. You have subjects, although it's a bit derogatory to talk about the kids as if they're subjects, so let's just say citizens of the kingdom, right? So you have a king and queen, you have citizens, you have to have law and order, right? And you have a territory. Where's that territory? Well, it's your household. It's those four walls in which you live. You have this little kingdom. You have to have law in order to keep order in the house and, and in order for the, the people to be well off, to be cared for. And our little kingdom 
functions best when it functions the way God designed it. When we follow the divine blueprints, when we listen to the divine architect, when the king and the queen realize that they're not the boss, that there's a higher power, right? There's a bigger king, and that's God. So we allow God to rule and reign. As the king and queen of this little kingdom, we make sure that we are ruling and reigning under the authority of God. We're making sure that we are setting the rules in place for the welfare of our citizens. And we are protecting our house. We are doing as Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Seek his kingdom first, and your little kingdom's going to flourish. Not that it's going to be perfect, but it will be successful. Whenever you purchase something expensive, whenever you make a big, big item purchase, you usually get a warranty with it. You want a guarantee that if something happens to that big purchase, you're not out more money. So if it's a car, house, new AC unit, Whatever it is, you don't want to drive that car for six months and then the transmission go out and then you're out that money. You want to make certain that you're covered. Sometimes you buy the extended warranty because there's a lot of computer stuff and all kinds of electronics on your car. You want to make sure that that's all covered because you don't want to be out of pocket an obscene amount of money. So you buy an extended warranty. When I was coaching baseball, we bought Easton baseball bats for one reason. I don't know if they were the best, but we bought them because they always stood behind their product. When we were practicing baseball in, in February in Arkansas, it's still cold out. Those bats would crack quite often. You could throw them in a box, ship them back to Easton, uh, Easton and, and within two days, they'd send you another bat. No questions asked. It feels good when somebody stands behind the product because those bats are expensive. At that time, they were like $250, $300. I don't know what they are now, but they were expensive. And so you want somebody who stands behind their product, who will replace it if it's defective or if it tears up. Look, I, I know that there are a lot of folks here this morning. They're in a home. They're in a marriage where it may not be functioning exactly the way that you would hope. For whatever reason, it's not going the way that you'd plan. And, and, and so many times, we don't go back to the blueprint we don't consult the architect. We don't rely on the warranty. God has given you a warranty. There's a guarantee here. So many times we want to we go to a third party. We don't let somebody else be the warrantor of this home. No, no, no. God's the manufacturer. Only the manufacturer can provide the right warranty. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you're struggling. If your home is not what it should be. Keep fighting. Don't give up. Quitting is never easy. may seem like it, but that's never the best option, ever. It's always the worst option. Don't quit. Some of you are struggling in your home. I mean, you're married, but you're nothing more than business partners in the business of raising your kids. Otherwise, you're, you're strangers in your own home. Some of you are not, you're not soulmates or roommates. You just share a dwelling place together. Your kingdom's dysfunctional. Let us help you. Let God help you. I will tell you this. 
If your home is not what it should be, consult the, the architect. Go back to the blueprint and fight. Fight for your family. My hope and prayer would be that every single one of us this morning would make a pact with ourselves, with our spouse, with our family, that we're going to fight for our family, that we're going to fight for an upside-down home, that we're going to do whatever it takes to make certain that we are living out God's plan for this. Whatever it takes, no matter what has happened in the past, even if I haven't been living it up to this point, I'm going to fight and I'm going to make certain that I'm doing everything possible to live in and flourish in an upside-down home. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church, for this family. We thank you for our individual families, and we pray, God, that, that it will look like the kingdom, that we can, that we can teach kingdom values, that we can, we can promote you as the ultimate king, and that we can, we can protect our homes. Help us, God. It's tough trying to develop an upside-down kingdom in this world around us. Help us, God, to, to fight and to not give up. We love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So Luke's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you this morning by praying with you. We also understand that not everybody answers the invitation right after the lesson. Maybe you need to speak with somebody later this week. Maybe you've been thinking about this and you want to talk to somebody, one of the elders, one of the ministers. Certainly we can do that with you as well. This is a family that loves and cares about you and loves and cares about your individual family. So let us help you. And maybe you're someone that has been thinking about what it means to be a disciple. You've looked at the Beatitudes. You've studied scripture with someone and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and begin that daily walk with God. Whatever your need is, let us help you as we stand, as we sing.